Let's take our Bibles, opening them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will read the first 20 verses of this chapter and reference some others as we move along. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let us briefly pray before reading. Almighty God, you have given to us this divine inspired word. It is inerrant in the whole and in the part, altogether trustworthy and reliable. And we believe you and we ask that as our hearts are once again informed and moved by the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you might confirm more deeply the assurance of faith that has been granted to us as believers in Jesus and also work in the hearts of those who may be among us today who have not yet trusted in Christ, that they also may trust in Jesus Christ who has been raised by your power from the dead. Blessed be your name for this wonder of wonders that sinners like us are saved from our sins through Jesus' cross and resurrection. Hallelujah. Glory be to your name. In the name of Jesus, our mediator, we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they... So we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. On this Easter morning, I want to 
remind you from the start that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is an historical fact. Jesus staked all of his claims upon his resurrection from the dead. One of the saddest things to me is to know that on this particular morning throughout our land, there are many people gathered in various settings that call themselves churches, and ministers are standing in pulpits, and they may even read words such as this, and yet when some of those ministers proclaim to their people, they are proclaiming a dead Christ. Oh, they may say that Christ has been raised in spirit, or that Christ is raised in the kerugma of the church, or that perhaps Christ has been raised in your heart, but they do not believe that Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. Now this is what the scriptures teach, that Jesus Christ was bodily raised out of the tomb. This is no addendum to our faith. This is not some add-on. It is not something that is disposable. There is no Christian faith if Christ did not rise from the tomb. Our faith is completely dependent upon the fact that the same body that was placed in the tomb was raised by the power of God out of the tomb. And this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, of which we have read the first 20 verses, is the most magnificent avowal of the resurrection of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. It's wonderful to read the narratives in the Gospels. It is wonderful to read through the epistles and see the various references, but this chapter is the pinnacle of a theology of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I want us to see several things here. The first thing I want us to see is the gospel defined. The gospel defined. And that takes us to these first four verses. Now, I want you to remember that 1 Corinthians was written around 55 A.D., very, very early indeed. And Paul tells us that what he preaches is the common Christian tradition. This means that the early Christian preaching dated back to the event of the resurrection itself, and that is emphasized in these verses. For example, in verse 4, when we read of the burial of Christ, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, Why does Paul record that? He records it for a very simple reason, because it means that Jesus that went into the tomb was really dead. He really was dead. And that the same body that was placed into the tomb is the same body that rose out of the tomb. It's important for us to understand that the tomb is empty, that he was buried, that he rose again. And it's important that Paul the Apostle records for us, also in verse 4, that he was raised on the third day. There's no time for myth to develop, no time for legend, ample opportunity to investigate the tomb, no time for great psychological traumas that lead to hallucinations and such things. No, on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Even the verb that is used for resurrection in verse 4 is telling. It's a gergetai, which is a perfect passive. What that means, the sermon being in the grammar, is that he was raised and he remains raised. That he was raised and the one who was raised remains living. Glory be to God. This Savior that went into the tomb was raised by the power of the Father and continues to live. It's even in the verb that Paul uses in verse 4. And he shows the inseparable relationship between the cross and the resurrection. Read these verses again, 3 and 4. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so this tie, this inseparable connection between the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. In the cross, our sins are paid for. In Christ's resurrection, the work of Christ on the cross is declared to be victorious, all according to the scriptures, says Paul, because this is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has prophesied regarding the Messiah. And so, the first thing we see is that Paul, the apostle, unmistakably defines the gospel of Jesus Christ. He defines the core of the gospel, and he shows us that resurrection is indispensable, that the Christian faith is anchored in fact, that the Christian faith is anchored in history, that the Christian faith is not, first of all, an ethical system. The Christian faith is not a philosophy. It is based upon the fact that God intervened into time and space to redeem us and that Christ who died on the cross to save us from our sins rose from the dead in order that we might be accepted with God. He defines the gospel. The second thing we see in the text is the gospel defended. The gospel defended. And here I have in mind the resurrection appearances. And he mentions numbers of those appearances. I'm going to focus for a few moments with you on one. And that is the appearance to Paul the Apostle himself. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You might recall that in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, in the very first verse, the apostle Paul said, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Grounding his apostleship in his having seen the risen Lord. And so he defends the gospel by mentioning these appearances of Jesus Christ, and he claims himself to have been an eyewitness of Jesus raised from the dead. Now, you can deny this, you can slough it off, but if you do, you have a great historical problem, a tremendous historical problem. Think about that problem with me. Here is Paul the Apostle. What do we know about him? We know that he was a rabbi trained under Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was thoroughly and deeply committed to Jewish theology and to a Jewish way of life and to the ancestral traditions that had been handed down to him. We know that he hated Jesus Christ and he hated the church. We know that he hated Christ and the church so much that he persecuted the church even unto the point of death. That's what we know about this Saul of Tarsus. That's what we know about Paul before his conversion. But now look at him. Now see Paul, the apostle. See how he loves the Christ that he once hated. See how he loves the church and does everything in his power to promote the kingdom of God, which he once hated. See how he spends his life in order to serve those that he once attempted to kill and to destroy. Now I ask you the question, how do you explain Paul, the apostle? What transformed Paul, the apostle? Christ is now dominated. His dominating and completely overwhelming passion is the Christ that he once attempted to destroy. How do you explain that? You have a great historical problem if you do not accept what Paul says. The reason that I'm changed is because I saw the risen Lord. 
He mentions other eyewitness appearances to Peter and to James. That's the brother of the Lord. To John, all of whom were critical thinkers. He says that Jesus appeared to over 500 of the brothers at one time, many of whom are still living, says Paul, even as I write this epistle. The implication being, go ask them. Go ask for yourselves. Go and talk to them yourself. And so the fact of the origin of the church is what the apostle is driving at here. Paul says that the great fact behind the church of Jesus Christ, the reason that there were disciples, the reason there was a church, the reason there was a Paul, the reason there is the proclamation of the gospel that conquered the ancient world, that conquers your heart, the reason is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There would be no church had Christ not risen. There would be no gospel to preach had Christ not risen. How then do you account for the origin of the Christian church? Paul says here, you account for the origin of the Christian church by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, of course, we know the usual explanations that have been brought historically that shouldn't take much of our time to mention. Those, those attempts to explain away the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know, of course, the first one, that the disciples were deceivers, that it was their uh, plan to deceive people into believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, almost no one here believes that anymore, but you still hear it from time to time and read it from time to time. A ridiculous view, absolutely absurd. Have you never read how Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 describes his own suffering for the sake of preaching the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Have you never read that Peter was crucified upside down? Do you know nothing of how the church was persecuted in its early days and still is persecuted today because of our commitment to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? It is absolutely absurd to say that the disciples were intentionally deceiving others. Many things could be said there, but let's move on. Others say, well, they certainly were not deceivers, but the disciples were deceived. Really? The tomb was empty. Anyone could investigate it, friend or foe. It was in Jerusalem. Nobody was produced. Easy just to go there and show that there was still a body in the tomb. We have these unimpeachable witnesses that we find here. So much could be said here. J. Gresson Machen made the observation, No sane men could think that they had extended companionship with one who was not really present or could believe that they had walked with him and had talked with him, were it not the case. My friends, the disciples were not deceived, and they were not deceivers. Jesus Christ really rose from the tomb. I've always been impressed with how Machen wrote about this, and I want to bring it to you this morning. This is from his little book, The Christian Faith in the Modern World. Machen says this, listen carefully. But it will be objected that all this is very well, but the trouble is that the thing we are asked to believe is really unbelievable. We are asked to believe that a dead man rose from the dead, and we've never seen a man who did that. What is our answer to this objection? It is very simple. You say, my friend, that you have never seen a man who rose from the dead after he had been laid really dead in the tomb? Quite right. Neither have I. You and I have never seen a man who rose from the dead, that is true, but what of it? You and I have never seen a man who rose from the dead, but then you and I have never seen a man like Jesus. Do you not see, my friends, 
What we are trying to establish is not the resurrection of any ordinary man, not the resurrection of a man who is to us a mere X or Y, not the resurrection of a man about whom we know nothing, but the resurrection of Jesus. There is a tremendous presumption against the resurrection of any ordinary man, but when you come really to know Jesus as he is pictured to us in the Gospels, you will say that whereas it is unlikely that any ordinary man should rise from the dead, in his case the presumption is exactly reversed. It is unlikely that any ordinary man should rise, but it is unlikely that this man should not rise. It may be said of this man that it was impossible that he should be holden of death. The point is that this thing hangs together. We have in the Gospels an account of the person who was entirely unique. He was totally different from other men in his moral purity and strength. Yet he made the most stupendous claims. Claims that place him beyond the bounds of sanity unless the claims were true. The claims are true if the resurrection really happened. They are a hopeless puzzle if the resurrection did not happen. Do you see what I'm driving at, my friends? The evidence of the truth of Christianity must be taken as a whole. The direct evidence for the resurrection must be taken together with the total picture of Jesus in the Gospels. And then that must be taken in connection with the evidence for the existence of God and the tremendous need of man, who, which is caused by sin. If you take the Bible as a whole, you have a grand, consistent account of God, of the world, and of human life. If you reject the Bible, and particularly if you reject the fact of resurrection, you have a jumble of meaningless and detached bits of information that dance before your imagination in a wild and riotous rout. What Machen is saying to us is, when we think of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we cannot sever that from who he is in his person. And there is for him the impossibility of the contrary. It is impossible for this man not to have been raised from the dead. Now, on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at Matthew's gospel. And we're beginning to see who Jesus is progressively as we work our way through Matthew's gospel. What if you came to the end of Matthew's gospel and it ended with crucifixion? Wouldn't you say this is incongruous with everything we've been learning about Jesus in Matthew? Don't you know that something else must be there? Wouldn't you scratch your head and say, this man can't simply die and remain dead? No, no, we have to move on to the resurrection narratives in Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And that is what Machen is saying. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God become flesh. Look at him in the gospels and see for yourself. This man could not be holden of death. But he was raised from the tomb. And so the Christian faith is established. Established by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So why do men oppose it? Why? Why do they come up with such ridiculous attempts to, to set aside the resurrection of Jesus from the dead when it is firmly and clearly established? Well, the reason, my friend, is because we have an axe to grind, every one of us, because we are sinners, because of our hearts, because we despise the God who made us, because we do not want this man to rule over us. We have an axe to grind, every one of us, and that is the reason that in theology and philosophy, and in everyday life, people have attempted to oppose the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But oppose it, if you will, it's still true. It's true, and it makes all the difference. And that leads us to the third thing I want you to see in the text, the gospel proclaimed. The gospel proclaimed. Now, what was happening in the church of Corinth is that some denied the resurrection of the Christian dead. 
They believed that Jesus rose, but they denied that the Christian dead would rise from their tombs. Paul says that's not possible. That if the Christian dead are not raised in the future, then Christ has not been raised in the past. That the union between believer and Christ is so essential that the resurrection of Jesus demands their resurrection and their resurrection demands the resurrection of Jesus. And so in verses 12 to 19, the Apostle Paul gives us these sort of what-ifs. He begins in verse 12 by saying, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, in other words, there's preaching in the church of this resurrection from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And in verse 13, he begins these what-ifs. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Not even Christ has been raised. If, if there is no resurrection of the Christian dead, Jesus has not been raised, and that means there is nothing but the grave that awaits you and me. That Christ is still dead, that the law of God still condemns, that there is no atonement to cover our guilt. That you go to the grave, and when you go to the grave, you find the grave absolutely padlocked. That's where you are, that's where you will remain. In verse 14, he says, our preaching is in vain. If there is no resurrection, we have nothing to preach. We have no good news to proclaim. He says, in addition to that, your faith is in vain. Nothing to offer a sinful heart. Nothing that would elicit faith. He says that we are false witnesses who have claimed to see Jesus if there is no resurrection. And in verse 17, he says, let's read it. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Shut out from God's accepting presence. Those Christians who died perished forever. Nothing to say at your grave. Why even have a minister? He has nothing to preach, nothing to proclaim. You're still in your sins. And so he says in verse 18, Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And he concludes in verse 19 by saying, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are hopeless if Christ was not raised from the dead. Bottom line, if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, when you go to the grave, you're carrion. You are food for the birds. You are food for the worms. You are food for the ground. There's nothing left. That's it. Verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul is showing the absurdity of such thinking. That there is no resurrection of the Christian dead and no resurrection of Christ. That's the point of the what-ifs. There are no what-ifs in the gospel. There is only the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the certainty of his people's resurrection in him. We do have a gospel to proclaim. We do have good news to preach. We do have hope for a hopeless world. The air is filled with hope because Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And that leads us to the next thing we want to see. The gospel has been proclaimed now, the fourth thing, the gospel projected. I'm thinking of the future here. And that's what Paul does in this chapter. Now, the verses that I'm going to be looking at are verses that I looked at with Freddie Carter a few weeks before her death. We talked about this. We 
talked about the theology of the resurrection. And you can see how eminently practical it is for each of us as we consider our own deaths. Paul, as he goes on in this chapter, says, We shall be raised. All the Christian dead shall be raised. For the Christian, a future has been given with the past. Do you remember how Jesus puts it in Revelation 1.18? I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus is saying, the key to death is in my own nail-scarred hands, risen hands. It is in my own power. There is no uncertainty that awaits unbelievers. And in this chapter, he deals with the first and the last Adam, the first Adam in whom the human race fell, the last Adam who is Christ. There will be no more who saves his people from their sins. And read with me, if you will, verses 21 through 23. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there's an order in the resurrection, says Paul the Apostle. First Christ and then his people, but he adds a depth dimension to that truth. When in verses 20 and 23, he speaks of Jesus as the first fruits of those who sleep. The word that he uses is the word oparche, and a theologian of the past has said that little word contains a thesis, and it does. You could write volumes upon that little word. Why does Paul use it? Because Paul is reflecting upon Leviticus 23 the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, used this very term, op-R-K. Of what did it use this term? About what did it use this term? It used it of the harvest that was coming. This little sheaf of barley would be cut, and then it would be waved as an offering before the Lord. This was the first part of the harvest that represented the whole harvest. When Christ rose from the dead, the first part of the crop representing the whole was harvested in his resurrection. The actual beginning of the general epical event of resurrection has already taken place. Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection of believers are but two episodes of the same event. You see, Paul is not simply saying here, Christ has been raised first, then the Christian dead will be raised. That's true. Paul is also not simply saying, because Christ has been raised, it is certain that the Christian dead will be raised. That also is true. But what he is saying is, that in the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection event has already started. The first part of the resurrection harvest has already been gathered so that the believer's resurrection and Jesus' resurrection are but two episodes of the same resurrection event. And so we have the promise that we shall be raised, and it is certain because in Jesus the resurrection has already begun. That's Paul's point. But he goes on, and he not only says we shall be raised, but he says in that resurrection we shall be changed. Look at verses 51 and 53, these magnificent verses. 
51 and 53. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Paul the Apostle says, The trumpet will sound, the Lord will descend, the dead in Christ shall be raised, and when that happens, blind eyes will see, and cripples will walk, and broken people will be broken no more, and tear-stained eyes will be wiped. He tells us, John the Apostle does, in 1 John 3, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in himself purifies himself, even as he is pure. Oh, my friend, I don't know what the resurrection body will be like, but I know that it will be like Jesus. I know that it will be wonderful, and I know that this is the hope that we celebrate on this Easter morning. So he continues in verses 54 through 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So that the grave, I was able to encourage our dear Freddie Carter and have been able to encourage all of God's people who have gone on before us in this congregation, the grave is a place of sojourning. It is a place of waiting. And when you go into that grave, your body has been just as much purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ as has your soul and is in union with Jesus Christ. And therefore, that body placed in the grave will be raised. The resurrection event has already begun. In Jesus, the first fruits of those who sleep. Now, we've been looking at the gospel of the resurrection. We've seen the gospel defined death, burial, the resurrection of Jesus is the core of the gospel. We have seen the gospel defended. The risen Christ appeared to the disciples and to over 500 of the brethren and to Paul the apostle and to others. We have seen the gospel proclaimed, that there are no what-ifs in the gospel, but Jesus, according to Paul, has been raised from the dead. And we have seen the gospel projected, that is to say, we have looked into the future promise that belongs to every child of God. But now let's conclude with the gospel believed. The gospel believed. For Paul, the most basic perspective on the Christian life is resurrection. Have you ever stopped to think about that? It's true. The Apostle Paul says, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which ye once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we could reduplicate that emphasis by looking at Romans and Galatians and all of Paul's epistles, and we could find that for Paul the Apostle, the most basic perspective on the Christian life is resurrection. That for the believer, resurrection is a future reality. We would not in any way, in any way diminish that emphasis. The body of the Christian placed in the grave will be raised out of the grave and reunited with soul when Jesus Christ comes again. But also, Paul would have us to understand that resurrection is a present experiential reality in the lives of his people. Let me put it this way. At the core of your being, believer, way down deep in your heart, who you really are, at the core of your being, you are already raised in Christ. At the core of your being, believer, we could actually say that you will no more be raised in the future than you are right now. Doesn't Paul say? We were crucified with him, we've been raised with him, we are seated with him in the heavenly places in union with Christ. And that's why, believer, your present life and service are not in vain. And at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, the apostle can say, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why are those acts of service for the sake of Christ and his gospel not in vain? Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead and because you are raised up in him, because you are in union with Christ, all that you do, whether recognized by others or not, whether recognized by the world or not, whether recognized even in the church or not, whatever is done for Christ is not in vain, but is firmly established because what you do is done through Christ, the risen Lord. Now, I think this returns us to the opening verses. All of this is true for those who believe in Jesus. But do you remember how he began? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. Do you believe in Christ? The Christ who died for sinners, the Christ who was raised from the grave. On this glorious Easter morning, do you trust in the risen Lord? Now turn in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the book of Romans, and let's look at one verse together. In Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is unpacking this great Christian doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. And as we come to the end of that chapter, he shows to us that the resurrection is indispensable for being right-wised with God, for being right in his court of law. Chapter 4 of Romans 24 and 25. It will be counted, he's talking about the righteousness of Christ, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord 
who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, Paul the Apostle doesn't say it's alone adequate for us to say that Christ died for our sins. He says we also must confess that he was raised for our justification. In the cross of Christ, we see his powerful love in redeeming us and paying for our sins. In his resurrection from the dead, we see the almighty power that is exerted in his resurrection from the dead that can actually apply the work of Christ to sinners like you and me because he is almighty and omnipotent in his power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an addendum to the cross. It is part of that one complex of redeeming events by which we are saved. Christ died for our sins. He rose again according to the scriptures so that, Paul says in Romans 4, you might be right with God, justified in his court of law. That's what he says. I ask you the question, are you right with God? Are your sins forgiven? Has your guilt been removed? Do you know this Christ who died for sinners and who rose by the power of his Father from the grave? Gerhardus Voss puts it so beautifully when he says, When Christ rose on Easter morning, he left behind him in the depths of the grave every one of our sins. There they remain buried from the sight of God so completely that even in the day of judgment, they will not be able to rise up against us anymore. Did you hear that, people of God? Did you hear that proclamation? Listen to it. When Christ rose on Easter morning, he left behind him in the depths of the grave every one of your sins. There your sins remain, buried from the sight of God so completely that even in the day of judgment, your sins will not be able to rise up against you anymore. That's 1 Corinthians 15. But we must come to the table. More time, more time. I'd like several more hours to preach. (laughs) Several more hours to sing. But we have nursery workers to be concerned with. (laughs) But this is just glorious, isn't it? I don't care how hot you are on this Easter morning. I don't care what you're going through on this Easter morning. Jesus Christ lives. And if you are here and you do not know him, come to him, trust him, embrace him by faith. Establish the house of your life on the rock of Christ, the risen Lord, because against this rock the rains may descend, the floods will come, the winds will blow in vain. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that there is a Christ who saves sinners. Hallelujah.